You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 114. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Wait, how are you going to skip that? Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or head to www.CodingBlocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. That's Joe Zach, who decided to flip the script today. <laughs> I'm Alan Underwood. <laughs> and I'm Michael Outlaw. And Joe, you want to say your voice so people know who you are? No, he doesn't. All right, cool. <laughs> Hi, I'm Joe Zach. I'm Joe Zach. Yep, you got it. Nailed it. This episode is sponsored by Datadog, the monitoring platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications, and the O'Reilly Velocity Conference. Get expert insight on building and maintaining your cloud-native systems. And Educative.io, level up your coding skills quickly and efficiently, whether you're just starting, preparing for an interview, or just looking to grow your skill set. All right. And in this episode, we're going to wrap up this series on the pragmatic programmer. And this time we are going to be talking about pragmatic teams. So with that, as we like to do, let's go ahead and jump into the podcast news. And Joe, I think you've got some stuff to share with us. Yeah. Um, so let's start off by saying big thanks to the iTunes reviews. Thank you very much. Simply Manuel. Eric Shin is strong. Let me repeat that. <clears throat> Eric Shin is strong and Dub Dub HG10. I wonder if that means he expects you to kick him whenever you, when you meet. Oh him. no, I hope not. <laughs> I'm more of a kit kind of guy. <laughs> All right, and we have on Stitcher, awesome with Lawson, uh, Glenn Moyes, simply Manuel. Yes. Uh, let's see. Is that misspelled? Codes for coffee, but. That doesn't look like he spelled it correctly. Uh, Red Peril, T. Gibson, and Lecherous Cthulhu. Well, you said it right this time. That's awesome. <laughs> and thanks for the thanks for wow. doing this again, Lecherous. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah, and- yeah. We met him at uh, Alan's uh, talk, uh, Kafka talk. Yeah, that's right. And for the record, it's Kafka. What did I say? Kafka. Sorry, right, dang it! <laughs> so you proper nouns. You got all the names right here, <laughs> but that's good. Hey, and so coming up, speaking of my Kafka slash Kafka talk, um, Atlanta Code Camp 2019. Joe and myself will be doing some presentations there, and Mike is going to be doing some meet and greet. That is, uh, is it September 14th? Man, I really should have checked that before I did this. Oh yeah, that's a. I don't know. Right. I think it's September. You know what? Just come on down to Atlanta and we'll figure it out. Yep. September 14th. So show up. Um, We'll probably do another drawing. So if you sign up with us at the booth, we'll probably have another drawing. Last time, what, we gave away a $100 Amazon gift card. So come by and see us. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what are you talking about, Alan? What do you mean? Oh, uh, I'll be talking about Kafka and Kafka, Kafka Streams. Yes, Kafka Streams. Very nice. Yes, uh, so some K-SQL. And I might even throw in some uh, Java or maybe Kotlin version of a Streams app just to show I'm how gonna, they differ. I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Kafka out in Long Island. <laughs> <laughs> the- <laughs> so I was pronouncing it correctly. It just depends on where you're from. Fair enough. Regional. Regional pronunciations. 
And uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, Jamstack. And this is probably going to be your last chance to hear me talk about Jamstack because uh, I've done this one a few times and I am uh, pretty sick of it. Kind of over it. You know, I, I mean, you should still go if you're in the land region. So it's going to be awesome. Yeah, definitely. But, uh, <laughs> man, I swear, I almost put in a talk for Kubernetes as well. But it was like, man, that means I'm going to be forced to have to make something work before then. So, yeah, I didn't. Yeah. And speaking of uh, front-end type stuff, I wanted to mention that I was on the back-end Bear podcast, but I kind of flipped the script on him. It's a great show. You should go check it out, especially if you like back-end type stuff. And uh, the guy, uh, Marco, is awesome. But uh, I kind of flipped the script on him, and I, I talked to him a lot about kind of front-end envy and kind of just talking a little bit about how front-end and back-end technologies have kind of been um, evolving and what that means for front-end and back-end work. And so I thought it came out really great. It was a great show, so you should go check it out at backendbear.com. And, hey, uh, I don't know. Were, were we going to do a book giveaway on this one? Because I guess – oh, I guess we're, now we got to do it because I just mentioned it. Yeah, I yep. guess that's done. So, you know, you're welcome, guys. <laughs> uh, and you could, you know, leave leave a, a comment on this episode. You'll be able to find it at uh, www.codingblocks.net slash episode 114. And you can uh, leave a comment there for your chance to win. And from our last episode, uh, Jordan wrote in – and I, I guess I'm never aware of this. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed, but he says I have an, an advertisement voice. You do. And he wants to hear me do the entire episode in my advertisement voice. So I guess it would go something like this. <laughs> this, uh, I hope everybody's ready for this. Now that we're done with our <laughs> iTunes reviews, I feel like I'm trying to do like a, if I, like, what was his name? Walter, uh, Cronkite. Cronkite. It sounds like it's, it almost sounds like I'm trying to, uh, like trying to do the regular show. In a quote, an advertisement voice. I want to say announcer voice, but an advertisement voice almost makes it sound like I'm trying to do a Walter Conkright uh, impersonation. Yep, that's all good. If you want to try and do it the entire show, it will be I don't somewhat think I'm entertaining. Pull that off. <laughs> somewhat hey, irritating is no, that no, what you said? entertaining. <laughs> no, not irritating. <laughs> and somewhat irritating. Hey, you know, whatever. Hey, also, I want to point out, like we always say, you can go to codingblocks.net slash episode one thirteen. But in your podcast player as well, it's worth mentioning if you swipe over to the show notes, we have a link to Mm-hmm. to the episode directly from the show notes so you don't have to remember what to type in or anything. So, you know, definitely check that out in your podcast player as well. And just to be super clear, because you said swipe over, so if you're on iOS, it's swipe up. Oh, okay. Interesting. Right. Yeah, if you're on Pocket Cast, I know it's it used to be swipe to the right. Um, but yeah, it, at any rate, in most of these podcatcher apps, you will be able to see, you'll be able to see the full show notes on the page. But if you want to go up there and do the survey or anything, just click the link. It'll take you up there and you can do it. So just swipe some direction until you figure it out. Yes. How's that? Swipe all over the place. All right. Now that we've got that out of the way, I, I just thought we never mentioned it. And you know, these show notes, we, you know, you do a ton of work getting these together. We, we put yes. a lot of effort into making sure that these are pretty. So, you know. Anyways. Yes, we do. And now with that, we will head into the next portion of our show as we start to wrap up our, or now actually, no, we'd be finishing our wrap up of the pragmatic programmer as we talk about pragmatic teams. Part one. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to be able to pull that off the entire episode. Yeah. All right. So, so. I thought that I, you know, we each picked a chapter, right? And we did the the chapters that you guys picked in the last episode, uh, and this was the one that I picked. And I thought that this was would be a pretty good summary 
you know, summation of the entire series here so far. So basically, we're going to take a lot of the the wisdom that we've already gained from this book, and we're going to distill it to see like how can we apply this to a team, right? And um, so you know, when working on a pragmatic team has its advantages, um, and the advantages of practicing the methods of the book are going to be multiplied many times over when you take it to a team, you know, so it's great for an individual, but you know, if you're just one person on the team that's trying to, you know, do the right thing, right. And other people, maybe they don't know. I'm not saying that it's like malice or anything like that, but you know, there's only but so much you as an individual can do, but combined, right. Like the, the, what's that saying? Like the, we're strength in numbers. Well, that's one, but there's many, there's many things like that one, but yeah, that, that one will fit the case, fit the purpose just right. fine. So, um, so yeah, so these, these, uh, are just a starting point though. The authors make the, make a point of mentioning that like, this is just a starting point and you know, that pragmatic teams, they need to take some of these lessons and evolve them and adapt them and refine them to the practices that are going to best fit their environment. Right. And so we'll start with the no broken windows, uh, so a lot of these are going to be like revisiting things that we've already discussed, but, you know, applying it to some, to the team. Right. So in the no broken windows section, if you recall, like that was where you're not going to let you as an individual, you aren't going to let something go, right? Like you see that something needs to be refactored or corrected or, oh, there's a bug there. And and rather than saying like, well, it's not my job, right? Rather than taking that kind of approach, uh, you're going to do something about it, right? Well, on a pragmatic team, everyone needs to take that same approach, right? Like you can't, you can't be the only one that's going like, we've mentioned the Boy Scout principle from the past, right? You know, like it, it really becomes a matter of everyone needs to take that type of approach to where if they see that something needs to be refactored or fixed or whatever, that, that they they care about the quality of it and they take a moment to go ahead and fix that. And as a whole, pragmatic teams will not and cannot accept broken windows. Okay. So I'm going to ask probably the obvious question here is how do you, how do you make that happen? It's, it's easy to take that upon yourself, right? Like I have, uh, I have my answer. Okay. I think that I, I know. Okay. It, it and, and it's going to sound super cliche, but you lead by example. Okay. So if you do it and you just talk to people and like, and they, Hey, why did you even touch that piece of code? I didn't think that's what you were working on. Like I found a bug, right? Like I saw, I found something that needed to be corrected or, you know, Hey, why did you refactor that? Cause it needed to be done. Okay. What about you, Joe? Uh, my answer is automation and stopping that stuff early. So if you can get like a linter or some sort of, you know, some sort of test or something that getting the ball rolling on those guys makes it really hard to, to kind of break those patterns later. But I've been breaking a lot of windows lately. So maybe you shouldn't be asking me. Well, I, I, the reason I ask is, I mean, we, we all know, like if you're listening to this podcast or, you know, the three of us, we care about what we do a lot. Right. That's the reason why we listen to podcasts, why we read books, why we watch videos, why we're constantly trying to better ourselves. Right. Like we want to do a good job on what we do. There are some people that it's a job, right? It's an eight to five. It's a nine to five. They come in, they do the stuff. They want to get paid. They want to go home. Those people don't care about it. Right. Like 
hey, uh, yo, I'm fixing this. Hey, don't touch that. It's not mine. I don't care about that. It's not mine, right? Or, or they're doing something in their side and they don't care about patterns because they're just trying to get the job done. How do you, or do you like how? How do you get that culture and get that ball rolling in a way that everybody gets on board? Or is it something to where if they're not on board, then you figure out ways to fix it, right? Like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious. So basically you're describing like a situation where you want to reward good behavior. So the people that are doing that, you know, but if somebody honestly just doesn't care about that reward, you're not going to be able to reward them in any way enough to where they're going to care. So then what do you do? It's kind of what I think you're getting. Yeah. You have somebody that just does not care to be, um, no broken windows, right? Like they don't mind putting in code that's garbage because, and take, when I say garbage, I mean, they're not caring about the maintainability or anything like that of the code, right? It's just, Hey, I got this ticket. I closed the ticket. Done. Well, put another way. Maybe it's that they aren't, they don't care. Hmm. I hate to even say care. Different priorities. Yeah, they're not right. as mindful about the implications of what they're doing. They closed the ticket. They got that problem solved. Doesn't matter that it's going to be a pain to refactor later when they have to solve that same problem in eight other places, right? Like th- there's very little thought put into it. It's just, hey, I got this thing done. That's my job. I had to close the ticket. It's closed. You know what I mean? And, and let's be completely honest. We've all worked with people like that. Just about anywhere you've ever been, there are plenty of people that, hey, it's my job to get stuff done. I don't really care how I do it. How I, do it. I don't want you to question me about how I do it. This is what I'm going to do. You know? Well, that's where I come in. I wasn't kidding when I said I've been breaking some windows lately. <laughs> but it's because I've got different priorities. So what I'm doing is basically doing some translation. And uh, it effectively ends up being kind of a lot of almost like data entry type work. And so I've written some scripts and some various things around it. But they're tricky. They're really not meant to be shared or reused because they're just kind of helping me through a task. Because I don't care so much about the maintainability about this right now because I just need to get some stuff translated over. And then I don't have to worry about those tools I use to translate hopefully ever again. And so it doesn't matter to me if you have to run the scripts in this order or else you have to start over. It doesn't. I don't care that much because right now I'm the only person running those. And I still have some things kind of like logged in a wiki or kind of checked in because I want to have some history of that while I'm working on it. But I'm hoping, I'm betting that this stuff is going to disappear. It's scaffolding for me. Well, that's and different. Though. Sometimes it ends up, yeah, getting, you know, sticking around. And sometimes you know it's going to stick around when you're doing that stuff, which is not so bueno. But there was a quote that was kind of like to your point about um, the automation that you mentioned, Joe. There was a quote in here that it, it appeared just before this section where it was like, you know, the preface to the to the rest of the chapter. And it says, the single most important factor in making project level activities work consistently and reliability is to automate your procedures, right? Which is kind of like what you're describing. So even in your case where you're saying like, okay, fine, I'm going to have these scripts and maybe they aren't perfect, but you know, cause you have to run them in specific order. So there's like some implicit dependencies there, but I mean like, you know, you're kind of automating what you're doing in that. So, you know, I don't know if I would count what I heard as the broken windows that we're necessarily talking about. Right. But uh, it's definitely taking longer than I want to. So, yeah, wow. I mean, yours isn't a shared code base right now. Yours is, you know, I need to get some stuff done. I've written my own scripts. But, yeah, I mean, I guess my point is, I agree, by the way. I think leading by example is huge because if you get enough people doing it, then it almost creates like a, um, 
a Game of Thrones shame type moment, right? Like people don't want to be the ones making that walk of shame, you know? So I like that because it encourages everybody to start doing things better. But I, I think there are situations where this is kind of a tough, a tough one, right? Because not everybody has the same desire to, to be the best at what they're doing. Like, Regardless of what it is, whether, you know, whether it's programming or anything else, sometimes to most people, good enough is good enough and that's it. Mm. Well, that's going to make the rest of this section disappointing. All right. So we're, that's out of the way. I'll never <laughs> mention it again. <laughs> but uh, I think the next part to talk about that boiled frogs and uh, stone soup is kind of uh, the, the original sections were about addressing that kind of problem and how do you institute change with a group of people. And that's where we kind of talked a little bit about with like stone soup. They kind of like did the, it was like the kind of lead by example. We're like, hey, let's go ahead and get this ball rolling, and everyone hop on. And boiling of frogs was kind of the other approach where you're basically um, you know kind of gaslighting someone or gaslighting your team, where you're kind of um, tricking them by slowly integrating the things that you think are right until the next thing you know they're uh, too far in to, to be able to back out. And we talked a little bit about like you know whether those things were manipulative or good or bad. But it was cool to see this addressed from more of a team perspective. Yeah, I mean, they, they call out that it's, it's easy enough as an individual to overlook the big picture, right, and and to get caught in the heat of that project's development and, and get boiled. But, um, you know, they call out that it's even easier for teams to do that, right, to, to overlook the big picture. And I'm sure we've all been in those environments where, like, you know, uh, you know, maybe you're whatever your next big feature is, right? And that's that's whatever that thing is, that's what everyone on the team is focused on. Not necessarily what really might matter is like, well, is this thing selling, right? Do, do the or the customers really asking for this, right? Like, because those are the kind of big picture things, but we get focused on like, can we do this? Not necessarily should we do this, right? Yeah, I could see that. And then that's kind of management's job or or whoever's pushing the project's job to kind of let everybody know what the bigger picture is, right? To keep to keep that frame of mind in the right place, I think. Yeah, okay, yeah, I would agree with that, but but I mean, we've been on several teams where like that hasn't been like, you know, you have your regular meetings. Yeah. And it's been more focused on like, can we do this? How do we do this? And little to no conversation about, you know, the Should big we picture. do it? Right. Or like, how does this fit into the big picture? Does it matter? Kind of situations, right? So it is super easy for the teams to be focused on that. Um, just because we get caught up in the, in the, the, uh, minutia of just trying to get the things in, you know, the gears moving. Yep. All right. So moving on, like it, you know, they, they call out that, and it can also be easy for the teams to assume that somebody else is going to address a problem or a bug or a feature or whatever. So, you know, you might see something and, and just like, oh, okay, don't worry about it. Alan's going to cover that or Joe's going to cover that. So, or, you know, if, if I see a, a PR come in, if Joe says, Hey, oh, well, here's a pull request. And I look at it and I'm like, well, I don't know why he would make that environmental change, but I'm going to assume that it was approved. Right. Otherwise, why would Joe do it? Right. Right. Yeah, you know, I think some of this ties back to the kind of no broken windows. Like if there was only the one bug that you saw, 
then you would probably ask about it. But if it's like the 10th or 11th one you've seen this week or like the thing is constantly busted, you're always having to kind of bang your thing back into shape before you work on it. Then at some point you're like, ah, oh, somebody probably is already working on it because there probably is somebody working on it because people have been doing things, making a lot of changes, making a lot of breaking, breaking stuff in the meantime. Um, and same with the environmental changes. Like if you're checking in screwy stuff all the time, at some point your coworkers are going to stop asking about it and they're just going to assume that it's for some reason and they don't want to argue about it. But if you've kind of been taking care of things, if everyone's been doing the scouting rule and the windows aren't broken, then when that fishy stuff starts to sneak in, it's easier to say no. Yeah, I'd also say, too, like things are probably a little bit different now versus when this book was written because you have ticketing systems like Jira or if you're using, you know, Azure DevOps for your your code storage and all that, there's, you know, ticketing systems built into that. So it's a whole lot easier now to sort of assign these things out instead of making assumptions. I I would think like, I mean, when this book was written a few years ago, you know, those things weren't quite as easy to get a hold of. But it's still easy. It's still easy to think that like, oh, there's probably already a ticket for that. So I don't need to create it. That's a good point. So, (laughs) so it can still happen. And, And like, even these environmental changes that we're talking about, it doesn't necessarily have to be like a hardware or, uh, configuration type of environmental change. It could be something as simple as like you brought in a new technology, yep. right? Like maybe you bring in some new library that, uh, you know, might have other ramifications, right? So, you know, like, I don't know. I'm trying to think like, hmm, what would be a good one? Oh, you, you have one right here. Well, yeah, I mean, okay, so I wrote down, but then I was thinking about, like, this one would be crazy, but, like, you know, if you had an, like, this is kind of an extreme example to prove the point, but, like, if, you, you know, if your app was an Angular app, uh, you know, and somebody were to bring in, you know, a, a React portion, right? Like, oh, yeah, sure, no, it's probably okay if we use React for this portion of the application. Like, is it? Or even like, if Like, you, technically, it might work. If you wanted to boil it back, you might even say something like, oh, well, we're just going to use web components here. Well, right. not every single browser supports that. So is that going to work out well? Is, right. Yeah. And it reminds me of a time when uh, Outlaw busted me for using a language feature of JavaScript that I shouldn't uh, because uh, it wasn't supported by a browser. Do you remember this? Oh, my God. And I was like, yeah, well, we got a transpiler that takes care of that stuff. But you pointed out that if I had just used a framework that we already had to kind of sit around, it actually had a better fallback plan and better support for the browsers. And so there really there was really – no reason to not go with another solution than the cool new thing I was trying to do. Oh, you I want to say it was related to promises. Yeah, um, it was related to promises. ES 2015 type feature. Yeah, and the way I wanted to do it, admittedly, was much cooler. But <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone agreed that it was like super cool. But uh, unfortunately, it just uh, wasn't as well supported, and it just wasn't the right solution for that problem. So it was nice to have that pair of eyeballs. And if my code wasn't so amazing all the time, Outlaw probably wouldn't have noticed when I snuck a little bit of dirt in. So I got lucky there because of all the hard work and amazing stuff I check in all the time. That's awesome. <laughs> I, like, I like the humble brag that he like goes along with it. I think that's yeah. the first time he's not done a self-deprecating uh, thing. So yeah, 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 I flipped the script on you. Yeah, yeah you I, just, I said the thing about the broken breaking of windows earlier. So I was like, you know what? <laughs> I'm me, about to make myself from the other side. Yeah, I'm gonna make myself awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Well, yeah. So I mean, kind of to Joe's point though, is that the authors say that everyone should be on uh, the lookout for changes to the environment, right? So if you see uh, you know new libraries that are coming in. Like why did the, did those really need to be done? Like were they necessary, or you know, are there going to be other ramifications that you need to worry about? Like maybe 
maybe all of your application is a .NET Core app and somebody decides to bring in a .NET Framework app or, you know, or, or I'm sorry, a .NET Framework library. Wait a minute. Why? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Is, was there not a .NET Core version? Uh, and mm-hmm. did they bring in everything that was necessary to make sure that that's going to work? Right in in all the situations, so you know because that that one specifically can get hairy, right? You're about to lose some time. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's fine that it worked on their machine, right? <laughs> right. Sure. Well, assume that they let's assume that they compiled it and it worked on their machine. <laughs> Sometimes that's an assumption too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> that's not an assumption anybody should make, by the way. So, so the uh, the the author suggests appointing a chief water tester. To monitor scope creep, timelines, and, envir- and environments. Anything that wasn't originally agreed upon, that's what this person would, you know, watch for. That sounds like a product manager to me. Well, yeah, I, I was kind of wondering, product. like, what if we did like a buddy system? It'd be kind of nice to have a couple water testers. And even if, like, you could ask sometimes, like, hey, did I go off the rails on this one or am I heading off a cliff? Like, just tell me yes and I'll stop right now. I don't think that I, I I don't agree on the product part because typically when I think of product manager, like they're not, I don't think of product managers as being into the code. But the right? scope creep, right? And the timelines like that's yeah, but we're not just talking that about manage. that though. We're talking about like things that changes that could be to the environment too though. Right. Yeah. So, so scope creep and timelines are part of that. Right. But changes to the environment, like we were talking about with the libraries, like, yeah, they won't care about they're that. They're not going to, they're not going to know or care. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. I don't want that job. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I kind of feel bad for anyone that does have that job because, like, uh, it kind of puts them in the position of kind of uh, slapping people with the ruler. And I guess there are some people that would probably like that. And so, you know, maybe it's okay. But I just kind of like the idea of having more of a kind of buddy or small pod system where you can kind of have those lifelines where you can kind of have a, somebody that you work with that you kind of trust if you work on a team. And you can kind of say, like, hey, did I – am I just – doing this wrong or, and like I, I added this thing. I don't know if it's right or I saw somebody else added this thing. Am I the only one that thinks this is crazy? And it's nice to at least have, you know, two crazy people or, you know, hoping that hopefully that one, at least one of these people will be able to kind of average out. Oh, two heads are better than one. Yeah. I like that. I, I think for me, like one of the things that I've always said about development in general that I think is exciting for most developers is the creativity, right? So it's like you said, I don't necessarily think having somebody there with like a ruler that's going to be slapping somebody on the hand every time they, they go past a boundary is necessarily the right thing because then it kills the, the creative freedom that a developer needs in order to write something good. So I don't know. I, I think it's a good balance. I, I don't disagree that there should be somebody monitoring these things, but I don't, I definitely don't think it should be like, oh, you spent five more minutes on that than you should have, you know. Well, I don't know that I was thinking of it going to that level. Yeah, I don't though. think it would be that extreme by any means. But, but you know, I mean, it would be easy for somebody to take that particular job description to heart and be like, no, 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 that's way out of scope. Don't mess with it, right? To me, I view this title, is, like this chief water tester, to me, this is the lead architect role, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, they know they're involved with conversations about timelines they're involved in conversations about scope creep and they know the environments and what's happening right yeah that's that's fair. that's kind of where i see that role fitting 
That's fair. But if you have a business card with chief water tester on it, <laughs> I will have to accept it. Yeah, I don't know that that's going to fly as well. Although I'm going to probably assume, like my first inclination is going to assume that you work in like a water purification <laughs> <That's right. laughs> uh, type of place, but okay. So I couldn't remember in uh, Harry Potter, did they give negative points or was it always positive? They got it's negative like, also. They got negative Okay, it's points. like 50 points from Slytherin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Slytherin never lost points, though. It was always Gryffindor. <laughs> it was always unjust. Yeah, like, don't don't be a Snape. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so they, they also say to keep metrics on new requirements. You ever done that? You I don't mean, know what that means, like time? Yeah, what are we saying? Uh, yeah, like, you know, if, if, if a new requirement comes in, then you're going to, like, track, you know, keep requirements. Uh, metrics on like you know the the how much effort it took to bring that new change in and you know like how long did it delay your project or whatever i think your we timeline. sort of do that like i've always sort of done that we have like estimates and time tracking right that's that's what i'm thinking right i don't know that unless something just went way crazy like beyond i don't know that i've ever really had to do any met, uh, retrospectives or anything on it although there have been things that we've worked on in the past where it's like hey we think this will take a week and then a month and a half later you're yeah. like okay <laughs> it kind of has if you could rate tickets after you're done you're like oh, yeah how'd you like this when you're two stars <laughs> uh but yeah, I mean, typically, I guess this is kind of done, like you said, through estimates, right? You estimated it four hours and all of a sudden it took two weeks. Then, okay, we were wrong. <laughs> you know? But I don't know that I've ever gone back and looked at any of that stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like we've had a similar conversation like this on, on the requirements. And, you know, I don't know that I have. You know, I, I don't. Yeah, because I think it was like around the estimating conversation that we yeah. had where we were talking about like, going back and keeping metrics on it and like then reviewing to see like, well, how far off were you and everything. So this is in that same kind of vein, right? Like, you know, but looking at it from a, a larger picture, right. And the, so it's not just you and like how you estimated this one thing and, and whether or not you were on track or not, but you know, what was the overall impact to the, the overall timeline? Yeah. I think for me, just to, to wrap that piece up though, like I think the reason why I never go back and look at it in terms of like truly how far off were you is every situation so different. So it's not like you can take that one thing that was blown out by two weeks and say, okay, well that means the next one's going to, we need to expand it by two weeks. It doesn't work like that. Right. Like it could, it could have been an integration problem that you could have never foreseen. You know, I mean, to that end though, there was one portion of the book and I don't remember if this is a portion we covered or didn't cover, but, um, they were, there was one section in here that I really liked where they were talking about how, you know, more often than not, as when we talk about software development and we try to make analogies to the real world, I mean, even on this show, we've done it countless times where we will make an analogy to construction right. and right in like building a house or a building or whatever. Right. And they call out like, you know, it's really not, mm. it's, there isn't, it isn't like that because it's easy when it's e- well, I should say it's easier if if you were in the business of building houses, for example, then you know you have a, a rough idea. Okay, this is what it takes to lay the foundation, right, of the house. Uh, you know, you know what steps have to happen beforehand to clear the land, to compact it, and then you know lay out the markings for it, and then pour it, and how long that's going to dry, and then you can estimate 
they like, after you've done that the first time, you can be like, okay, it took me X number of days to do that the first time. Right. So it's probably going to take me X number of days to do the second one. Oh, I was off by a day. Yeah. Okay. Well, why was I off by a day? Well, okay. I need to account for that. Okay. Then you do another one. And pretty soon you're going to be able to refine that to where because it's so cookie cutter, you're going to, you're going to have a pretty good idea of what that takes. Right. But they caught out that like software development is more like tending a garden. <laughs> it's going to constantly be changing. Each one is going to be a little bit different because the soil is going to be different. You know, one thing is going to grow and it's not going to look right. Or maybe uh, it, it didn't grow well enough because of the particular environment. You know, maybe there was too much shade. It didn't get enough water. The soil wasn't just right or whatever. So you're constantly going to be like, okay, well, uh, it's time to trim this and, and cut it out, i.e. refactor, right? And put something else in its place or, you know, whatever, right? So so they made the analogy that software development is more like gardening than it is uh, building construction. I thought that was kind of neat. It, it is. And, and it's so true, too, because you might not have even made a change to your application, but there was some sort of cumulative update to your operating system and all of a sudden your thing's broken, right? right? Or it's running slower or whatever. Like it's stuff you can't control. When you're building a building, there's just certain things you do. You have two by fours, you have nails, whatever. It goes up, right? It, it, there's a lot of knowns and not as many unknowns. So it's it's definitely not the same world. It's easy to talk about them similarly in terms of building blocks, Right. But in, in truly estimating and maintaining all that, it, it's not even the same ballpark. Yeah. I liked it so much that I was like, you know what? I'm going to try to commit that to memory from now on. That's what I want to try to remind myself to talk about instead of making the building analogy. We're going to, we're going to be planting strawberries next. And, and I'm, I'm probably going to forget that next episode. So just be prepared for that. Fair enough. You know what? I tell you, like, when, when people do work around my house, I kind of think of it like it's a commodity. Like, you know, I expect the sprinkler people to come out and they're going to do just as good a job as the other sprinkler company if they come out. So I shop based on price, whatever. But any sort of home repair project I try to do, it feels like custom software development for me. <laughs> Things are crooked. The screws don't work. <laughs> Door doesn't <laughs> like, open of the pieces anymore. Fit. I got spare parts left over. Well, that just I go to Lowe's three times. Better. Uh, that that's the part about home projects is so frustrating is you know what you need. You go to Lowe's or Home Depot, you get what you need. You come home and you're like, I forgot one thing. And then you go back five more times because you forgot five times one more thing. Right. Right. Oh, I do the calculations on the mulch. I'm like, all right, I need 20 square feet of mulch. And by the time I'm done, I've bought like 80 somehow. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that's how Steve Jobs' uh, your projects around the house went? Like he would be like, and one more thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's what happened. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. So, you know, the last thing in this section was they make the point of saying that pragmatic teams should not reject new feature requests outright. Uh, and instead, you should be aware of when they occur and that they will occur and, you know, be receptive to them because otherwise you might be the one boiling. I like that. I'm always open to feedback that makes sense, right? Like a request that makes sense. Yeah, you come out with me with something stupid now. Now hold on, right? Not now just- we're gonna have a problem. <laughs> now we're gonna you go back to your corner. Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, because you like said that it had to make sense. It has to make like, sense. Yeah. Like let's let's be honest. Yeah. Uh. All right. So here's like one of the the most difficult parts of any team is communication. Oh my god. So. 
Pragmatic teams need to communicate clearly to everyone else as one voice. Uh, okay, the team needs to communicate with one voice. So you need a consistent voice. So yeah. that means you have a spokesperson. <laughs> well, it doesn't have to be a spokesperson. It just means that you have to use the same language. So the team as a whole uses the same language. And when talking to other groups, you you don't air your do- dirty laundry, so to speak, right? Like you 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 stay on message with whatever your team is trying to deliver. And you might have you know, your disagreements, but you keep those in house, right? Like, and, and, uh, you know, until, and like, unless the team changes their collective mind on, on something, right? Well, this is, this is almost like some of the uh, big company, uh, like commandments or whatever, like commit and, and go, right? Like, yeah. Even if there's disagreements or whatever, you got to commit to something and everybody has to be on that same page. And that's, you know, after reading the next bullet point, that's what this is saying. And I agree with that. Yeah, you definitely. Um, the, what you don't want to do is like, so you, something doesn't happen in IT. And next thing you know, you're over in customer service, like gabbing to their manager or one of their employees about something that you don't like or disagree with, and that just looks bad on everybody. And it just kind of stirs up drama and resentment, and just it just harms everyone ultimately. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to make this feature so much easier for you, but they wouldn't let me. So <laughs> right, yeah. uh, right. I mean, that's the type of thing that you're talking. And about, it can right? happen. Yeah, it's insidious. Oh yeah, behavior. it's easy to happen. <laughs> yeah. So I've never uh, done it, but <laughs> you know, Alan, you kind of hinted around at this bullet point, but the worst teams are those that bat that are bad tempered or difficult to get information from. Yeah, don't don't be belligerent. Don't be hard to work with. I mean, man, that's there's no reason people should be that way. Right. Th- these are these are teams whose meetings have no structure and no one wants to talk. Their documentation is awful. Uh, any two documents that you get, uh, they're not going to have the same format, and they'll use different terminology. There's no ubiquitous language among the team members or their documentation. Great teams, on the other hand, they have a personality. You look forward to meeting with them and working with them because they're organized. Their presentations are well-prepared. Their documentation is consistent. It's current. It's accurate. It's concise. All of the members use the same language, and, and they all speak as one voice. You know, one thing I'll say about this section, and and I completely agree with this. I mean, we've talked about in the past, like the type of people we'd want to hire. And I'll take somebody that's just, you know, a go-getter over somebody that's just, you know, got every mathematical algorithm formula in their head, right? I'll also take somebody that is super easy to work with. You know, that combination of relentless and, you know, brings a smile with what they do. I'll take that any day of the week because it sure does make working a bigger pleasure than than having a fight with anybody. And you spend too much time at work to be miserable. Yeah, seriously. I mean, you spend what you're awake what fourteen hours a day, and you're at work eight to nine of it. So yeah, sixty yeah, percent of your day is spent at work. It shouldn't it shouldn't be frustrating. So you get ten hours of sleep. Uh. Did I say fourteen? Was it sixteen? <laughs> I did. I did on Saturday. That was so good. Uh, it's probably- nice. Oh man, good <laughs> lucky show off. All right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but I mean, to kind of to the point earlier though, like these are the teams that you know 
Yeah, they, they use that, that ubiquitous language and speak as one voice externally, but internally they have lively debates. There's nothing wrong with the lively debates, right? You can have strong opinions and you can express those strong opinions, but at some point, to, you, to what you were saying, Alan, to your point, at some point you just have to, you know, it, agree to disagree and accept what the team has decided and moved on, right? Like you can't keep belaboring whatever your, the point was, right? And, and good developers are passionate developers, which is, I think part of what you were getting at too, with like what you look for. Yeah. And by the way, look, I'll be the first to admit this whole commit and move on. I've not always been perfect with this, right? Like there's, it's hard. There are definitely some decisions where I'm like, man, that is a boneheaded decision. And I'm going to tell you about it the next 30 times we talk and then I'm going to move on. Right. And that's, it's something I actually had to work on internally because I know it's not productive for anybody. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's, when when you've been told that, yes, I hear what you're saying, sorry. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, doesn't matter. Then by continually bringing it up, all you're doing is creating friction, right, and tension. And, and that doesn't help anybody. So, you know, be aware of it. Be conscious of it. Yeah, what you're saying might be right, but you got to also know when to table it. Yeah, it it is it is really hard because it, at some point, like you don't want to be that guy, right? Like, and and by that guy, what I mean is, whatever that hot button is, whatever that subject is, people will be like, "Well, I know I can't go to, you know, Michael, for example, about it because every time I, you know, if we go to him to talk about it, we're immediately going to go down this other tangent of why this was the wrong decision in the first place. So we're better off to just, you know, talk to somebody else, right? And maybe that somebody else is a good person to talk to on the subject, but maybe they're not, maybe, maybe your first choice, like maybe Michael was the better choice f- for that particular topic. I don't know, but you get what I'm saying though. Like yep. you can automatically be skipped out of conversations and you might be the subject matter expert on a particular thing just because, you know, you've, you've now created that. People don't want to deal you know, with you. Yeah. Yeah. So, and <clears throat> they say that the simple marketing trick uh, to communicate is one, Right, like you know, when we were questioning this, like how do you communicate as one voice? Is generate a brand. Now, I will tell you, I don't think I've ever been on a team where, well, maybe that's not true. Where, well, I'm thinking, like, have I ever been on a team where this is true? Like, you have a team name and a team logo. Now, that's the part that's crazy. Mm. And that when when communicating with others, you use that name or that logo. And then that builds an identity for your team to build on, as well as something memorable for others to associate your work with. I kind of like that. So we're gonna have a logo tomorrow. As <laughs> at first, like as I started that statement, I was like, I've never done that. But then, like immediately, some some uh, teams within, like at IBM, for example, came to mind, and I'm like, oh no, wait a minute. Like depending on how small or large you're talking about this team, mm-hmm. that was definitely done. You would definitely yep. have logos for it and and names for it, and you know people knew like, oh, that's you know that's the thing, right? That's fun. Yeah, I remember uh, Semantic had teams. I don't remember what <laughs> what the team mascot was anymore, but they, they kind of stuff like that would spin up, and they would do like a little either friendly competition or would do shirts or something around it, just kind of try and bolster that identity, which I think is really cool. One thing I, I think to watch out though for is uh, I've I've worked at places that have been part of or been excluded from like kind of little cliques that sometimes develop. Or maybe you have some developers that will just like get along really well into like buddies. Uh, 
And then whenever they come around, it's like, oh, it's the three musketeers. And then whenever someone, you know, as else is kind of mixing, then it could be a little awkward because, you know, these other three have like such a strong kind of team identity together, but they're only a, sm- a smaller part of this team or maybe not even on the same team. So it could be a little weird. And that's something we always had to watch out for with being on the, co- the, the podcast together is we have to be careful not to, you know, kind of always <laughs> have the team and identity when we're working together. We need to be able to like kind of stick to stick to the bigger team and larger goals and not kind of click up. That's why I, I purposely disagree with you every time. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we were somewhere that um, there was like a, a couple people, uh, like a t- 20 people on the team, and like four or five bicycles, like mountain biking or, you know, road biking. Bicycling. And that meant they were hanging out on weekends, doing stuff together and kind of having these conversations about work and kind of getting on the same page about things that the other people who weren't in the bicycling weren't a part of. And that caused some friction. Sometimes it was a little bit awkward. Like overall, I think it was probably good and like, you know, uh, overall a good thing. It's not like you shouldn't be able to hang out with your coworkers, but just something you have to be careful of when those kind of tighter bonds start forming that it's not exclusive. It's not exclusionary to the other people on the team and that you still have that team identity. I think, I think what you just said is the most important part. As long as what you're doing isn't excluding other people, right? Then then it's probably okay because it like what you guys are both saying is it sort of creates factions, right? Like my team is against your team because, you know, we, and that's what you're not trying to do. You're trying to build your team up, but not at the expense of everybody else. Well, I think what I'm hearing is that great pragmatic teams mountain bike together. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's the takeaway uh, from this. So I'm going to go get a Huffy No, But yeah, I mean, like, I mean, you're, you were kind of talking about like smaller teams, but like, um, you know, when I was thinking back to the, like the IBM example, right? Like, uh, you know, for anyone who's in the Atlanta area, you, and you might even recall this one too, Alan, the arts cafe. Does that, does that ring any bells? Like, mm-hmm. you know, that was, that was a, a team where like, that's what it was known as, right? Like, you know, if you needed any kind of anything related to, you know, any kind of art you needed, it was the arts cafe. Hmm. And it wasn't like it was like officially the thing, the name, but like there was a logo, it was on the door. Like that's where, that's what it was, you know, and, and, you know, it was, it was a pretty decent sized team, but you know, as an example, right. So I thought it was a cool name too. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Datadog, a monitoring platform for cloud scale infrastructure and applications. Datadog provides dashboarding, alerting, application performance monitoring, and log management in one tightly integrated platform so you can get visibility quickly. Visualize key metrics, set alerts to identify anomalies, and collaborate with your team to troubleshoot and fix issues fast. Try it yourself today by starting a free 14-day trial and also receive a free Datadog t-shirt when you create your first dashboard. Head to www.datadog.com slash coding blocks to see how Datadog can provide real-time visibility into your application. Again, visit www.datadog.com slash coding blocks to sign up today. All right. So continuing on here, let's get to don't repeat yourself. And since, since we've already talked about this before, we'll skip it. What'd you say? Uh, <laughs> said, what was that? Don't repeat yourself. <laughs> Do right. it again. Uh, yeah. Okay. So they, they call out that duplication is wasted effort and that this, duplicated effort can create maintenance headaches, right? I think we've all seen that before. Like we've talked about examples where, um, you know, you, you, you 
have like a bunch of code, you, you're like, oh, well, I don't feel like rewriting this to where I could use it again in some place, other place. I'm going to like just copy and paste it. And now, you know, something needs to change or maybe it had a bug and you don't know that you need to fix it. Right. But that's like on the, at the individual level. But now we need to talk about this at the team level. Right. And so like, how do you avoid that type of duplication i mean because it's a similar type of duplication that we're talking about but at a team level where like maybe an entire other team doesn't know that your team has created this amazing like for example this amazing logging framework and you should use that framework or maybe you know there's something related to like uh you know how do you ensure that you're protected against uh cross-site scripting right and and your team has solved some kind of problem right and you need to let other teams know like hey this is the way you should do these and don't go and reinvent your own will, right? Then this is where they were saying like going back to a previous section that good communication among these teams can help to reduce this duplication. Okay. So I've, I've got to ask some more questions here because this is probably the one part of development that I feel like scales the worst. Oh God. Yes. Is, is communication. Like, even if you even if you don't have a ton of developers but you just have a few teams like how do you effectively communicate between teams and and here's the reason I bring it up okay everybody wants to have more meetings right so let's have a meeting and get everybody together and tell them what was done and let's hope that people aren't doing other things like looking at their cell phones or working on something because they're like, Oh my God, there's another meeting. I need to do some work, you know, whatever. So that's probably not the most effective way. Sending an email. If somebody gets an email that has a page of information on it, that's not directly related to what you're working on at the moment. Chances are you're going to forget that email was ever sent, right? Okay. Well, let's do something even better. Let's create a wiki page. Let's create a wiki page because, man, that's a searchable index. I could put some great information in here. And anytime anybody needs any information regarding this subject, they'll just go to the wiki and search for it, right? Because those thousand other links in there, they, you know, they'll go right by those. So here's my problem with this entire thing is how do you communicate effectively amongst many people on many teams when chances are whatever you're talking about is not relevant to those people at that given point in time and therefore is crammed to the furthest reaches of their mind never to be dug up again. Because what will happen is a month later when they actually care about whatever it is, they're going to send an email out to everybody and be like, hey, why is this thing like this? You'd be like, if Wait. you're lucky. Right. If you're lucky. If they don't just go duplicate the effort because they didn't know about it in the first place. So – I guess my question to you guys is how do you effectively communicate things out to reduce duplication or, or any number of other problems? Uh, I definitely like small teams with like kind of some spoken delegates. Cause once, once you get more and more people, you can't have everybody talking to everybody. Especially if you've got a 200 person team, you can't have each person talking to 199 other people and trying to keep in touch. Like you've got to have a hierarchical structure at that point. And so the, I think, as things get above, you know, is it two pizzas, like 10 people or something? Or in my case, like two people. I like that. Uh, two pizzas. That's a good then, approach. All right. Well, okay. Then, but to, you should probably define that. I don't so know if you've ever described teams? it. Two, two medium pizzas will feed, what, 10 people? Medium. 
<laughs> okay, too large. Two, yeah, however many people he, he can feed with the tibia. I think I, I forget where that was. Uh, it's like two slices up. per person. Yeah, however so. many people you can feed with the two pizzas, that's the maximum number of people that you can have in the meeting. In a meeting. All right. So keep going. Sorry. Yeah, and uh, even uh, that. Actually, I've heard that for team sizes too. Like any more than that, and it just gets kind of unruly. So if you can keep your team sizes to basically two pizzas, you know, give or take a bit, then uh, or preferably take a bit then you just limit some of the, the extraneous communication that needs to happen. But it does mean you need to have good communicators in those lead roles and they need to be able to understand what's going on, at least at a high level, high enough to know, oh, hey, I heard there's something that you want to do. You want to create a new authentication form. But I know that uh, somebody else on another team over here did something similar recently. So let me reach out to them and find out. So they don't necessarily have to know, no, don't do that. Someone did that or someone is doing that. But they have to kind of know enough to say, Mm, that's kind of tickling my funny bone. Let me go find out a little bit more about that and see. Cause I can't imagine like, you know, if you're working in a, a company with like a hundred people and you've got a couple of people, you know, being redundant or doing things kind of in a, you know, re-implementing solutions, you know, that stinks. But if you're a super large company and you've got like whole subsidiaries duplicating functionality of other subsidiaries, like that's terrible. It's crazy when you think like, hmm, this company has 50 people that are implementing the new, uh, you know, Kubernetes framework. And like this company's over here, they've got 60 people implementing Kubernetes on their frameworks. So it's crazy. I mean, here's my thoughts on it is that, you know, they, they mentioned having a, a project librarian, which we've talked about before. Uh, that can coordinate the documentation in the repository so that others can go to this librarian when they're looking for something. And the librarian can be responsible for spotting duplication uh, when they get something new. But, you know, I mean, even in the examples that I gave, right, related to, you know, hey, we've created this awesome logging framework. Don't do not do it again. I think at some point, and especially like as, as the organization grows, it's okay to allow for some duplication because kind of to you know, your point earlier, Alan, it will allow you, it'll allow you to experiment and try new things. Like you might have created the greatest logging framework ever. It doesn't mean that there might not be a better way, right? So you should still be allowed to, you know, there should still be some flexibility to be able to like, you know, whether you know that that other one exists or not, like you should be able to, you know, create some some things that are repeated though so part of this i kind of take issue with like at the team level about like not allowing like to to 100 percent not say that there's no duplication right ever then i can't i can't get a hundred percent on board with that right and, and if we go i mean back, i understand the intent if we go back to clean architecture too right there's accidental duplication and then there's right. And then there's intentional, right? Just because you have similar code doesn't mean that you're actually doing something wrong. They might have two different purposes mm-hmm. and they should change for different reasons, right? So, you know, I, I don't know. The librarian thing, I kind of get, but I mean, even large pull requests, like it's not like you can just look at a pull request and know what's going on. You've got to pull down the code, look at it in the context. Like you're talking about a pretty grueling job of being that librarian. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, especially like if you picture, you know, I picture if it's a team where like you only have maybe 10 people or 20 people, for example, like those kind of teams. Okay, fine. Maybe, maybe you want the one library that you're going to use for like, Hey, this is how we're going to handle logging, for example, or this is how we're going to handle authentication. Uh, You know, maybe that's okay. But if you're the size of Facebook, 
you know, you might want to like, allow other experiments because like, yeah, sure. You solved it. You solved authentication, uh, you know, 10 years ago. Okay. Are you really not going to let anything else come along? Right? right. As, as new authentication methods come out. Right. So you, I kind of envision is like, okay, yeah, we have this, this other version of authentication, but you know, I want to try new things. And then like you create that new version and maybe it starts to gain popularity, and now it becomes the newer standard across an organization the size of someone like a Facebook, for example, right? So, in some regards, like that—that's why I say, like, I understand the intent behind there to do not repeat yourself, but you can't be like one hundred percent never repeat yourself. It's going to it, there's going to be some variation there, especially depending on the size of the teams. You know, sometimes stuff is just a little bit different. Like Auth is a good example where you can imagine where like the, the mothership Facebook has uh, something for authentication, I'm sure. And, and it probably supports uh, SAML and LDAP and uh, Kerberos and OAuth and all this other crazy stuff. And you can imagine like you're on a small team trying to create a little website for your, um, uh, you know, for your company's softball team and you need to be able to log in and say, okay, well, I'm going to use the company authentication system. And then you got to go set up some, you know, Kerberos servers and so do all this stuff because it's a big heavyweight tool that's designed for millions of people and not for your softball team. And so you're going to have a much harder time implementing that stuff because it just wasn't designed for you. So a lot of these technologies and logging frameworks and a lot of other things may not be adequate to your needs. And so sometimes it's okay to say, you know what, I think that our needs are going to differ enough that it's not worth trying to make it generic to suit both of them. And I mean, part of your problem there too, in that particular example is, I mean, we've already decided that great teams mountain bike together, not play softball. So I mean, <laughs> like right. right away, you're like, what am I doing? It's a failure. So <laughs> no, those balls are not very soft, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So they also call out that, you know, if the, if the, if the project is too big for one librarian, you know, this is kind of the point that you're making Alan, is like, you might want to have more than one person, you know, you might want to have a few people as the primary context for different functional areas of the, of the uh, overall project. And they also call out like, did not forget the value of online user groups and mailing lists and forums and wikis and things like that. Like, um, you know, to be able to like archive questions and answers and discussions. Stack overflow. Well, I mean, I was thinking about like uh, the, you know, the MVP mailing lists, for example, right? Like, you know, things like that, you know, there can be, there can be, really good resources huge value all right and then there's everyone's favorite orthogonality i love that word yeah it just it just puts a smile on your face to say it right um so they say that traditional teams are organized such that individuals are assigned roles based on their job function so uh you know the the rational unified process uh in an introduction, this is this is a book title. The Irrational Unified Process and Introduction identifies twenty-seven different roles within a project. Twenty-seven different roles. Uh, that's a few. That was that was crazy. Uh, I mean, like I, I mean, I'm sure we could rattle off you know easily a half dozen or a dozen, but wow, twenty-seven. Um, so roles have an implicit hierarchy. And I thought this was an interesting point that they make here is that the closer the role is to the user, the more senior the role. I don't think I'd ever thought about that, but it sounds about right. Right? Exactly. That's what I loved about that statement. I was like, oh, yeah, 
that's a that's a really great observation that I've never I embarrassingly have noticed before. <laughs> I guess we're talking specifically about the project, not about the software, right? I mean, yeah, I could think be so. either. I think right? so. That's why why like, couldn't it be you know, I've seen lots of businesses that would kind of buy a design and then kind of have, you know, more of the stuff going on in the background. Um, what the design is what the user kind of interacts with. But I guess I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to approach that. But I do see it. And when it comes to project management, like the person who's paying the bill, like they need to be the happiest, right? Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, I would, I would agree with that statement. I mean, not too happy when they're ripping you off, but. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, uh, I mean, I know you say that jokingly, but there's a, a chapter later in the book where they describe that, like, um, I forget exactly how they worded it, but it was something about, like, going a little bit above and beyond with your, you know, for your customer because you would gain some goodwill I from that. that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know. So yeah, you know, you do want to like put that extra smile on their face. So like it was basically, basically what they said was something to the effect of don't just do what they asked. Right. Yeah. Over deliver. Yeah. Uh, one of my, one of my old VPs, he used to say, you have to give it the extra lanyard, which is a, an old New Orleans type saying where it's that little bit extra. Like if you went to the butcher or whatever and you ordered some ham, right. They give you a little extra and it was called lanyard. Land Lanyap Lanyap L A G uh L A G N L A G N I A P P E Lanyap. And it's actually the definition is something given as a bonus or an extra gift. So um it, it was fantastic. Like he, he was probably one of the best leaders I've ever had the pleasure of working with, but he just had that ability to to make people want to work harder. And his thing was, hey, when you deliver something Give them a little something extra, right? Make them happy about the fact that they came to you for whatever the project was or whatever the solution was. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, this weekend, Webster's Dictionary, we will teach you all the new words. Yes. I, I will. <laughs> Is there a way to link to this? All right. Google result? Mm-hmm. So uh, they also mentioned that some development environments are going to have strict divisions of responsibilities. So, you know, we've, we've seen these kind of environments before, um, but, you know, they call out like, you might not be able to talk to testers or the chief architect, for example, or, you know, to make matters worse, uh, some organizations might have different sub teams that report to different management chains, right? Have you, have you been in those kind of environments? Do you know the type of environments I'm talking about? Yes. Oh yeah. Don't like those. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> they're really, uh, counterproductive, I guess. Like it's more about rank, right? Uh, yeah i I would say like it sometimes kind of makes sense like you want things to go the proper channels i'm sure you've been on teams where kind of they say like hey don't let the whatever team come directly to you because we need to kind of track this stuff and manage it make sure that they just aren't always going to the dev team or whatever right and you know that stuff it makes sense like i get it but it is frustrating i definitely think if you can um be closer to the customer and you work closer with the kind of end users then ultimately everyone's gonna be happier because you're not playing the telephone game but as things get big you just can't keep up with that well so here's my thing with that right like if that's truly what it was was making sure that you were shielding teams and all that then fine a lot of times it feels way more political than that you know like hey i don't want you getting goodwill with somebody because i'm trying to move up the corporate ladder or whatever like as long as there's not some sort of 
you know, garbage going on behind the scenes and maybe I get a little bit more, but oh, the political games are the worst. Yeah. I can't, I can't yeah. tolerate that stuff, but it's to me, the thing is when you break a developer, especially when that communicates well, like you don't want somebody that doesn't communicate well, trying to communicate with the end users because that usually doesn't end up well. But if you have trusted developers that communicate well, typically you can get to a better solution if they have more direct interaction with whoever you're building the product for. Right. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, they, they also What's make that look Joe. <laughs> No, I'm just remembering uh, uh, pleasant <laughs> memories. Pleasant. Uh, they also make a point of saying that don't fall victim to thinking that the various tasks for a project can happen in isolation uh, because they can't. True. Right? Like the team teams are going to need to work together, period. Right? To get to that end goal. Uh, you know, analysis, design, coding, testing, these are all perspective of perspectives of the same problem. And in fact, um, there's a different portion of the book where they actually refer to these as uh, different views. Like they, they kind of, if you kind of think about it in the model view controller or, you know, that type of model view, view model kind of thing, like it almost sounds like that's where they're coming from. Right. It's like, it's just different views of the same, of the same problem. The right? yeah. Um, so yeah. And developers that are two or three levels removed from the user will likely not be aware of how their code is used and therefore not be able to make informed decisions while developing it. Yeah, I feel that way too. Again, I I don't know that you can always involve every developer at every level, but worst, I mean, worst case scenario, if they can't talk to the user for whatever reason, then at least within the team, there should be some sort of communication going on to let people know like, Hey, the reason we're doing this is X, Y, and Z, right? You know, I don't know. Communication is, is definitely super important with this. And and sometimes it's difficult too, though, because like it's easy. Okay. So let's say that you're working on like a line of business application, right? And so the users of it are just down the hall, right? Those are, those are situations where it's a lot easier to talk to the user of your software, right? But you know, if, if your, if your user is some random person, cause you know, like for example, you're building a dot com, right. Then it can be a lot more difficult to get that kind of feedback and engagement with the user. Yep. True. All right, Joe, you take all the tips. What's this one? All right. Uh, number 60 organize around functionality, not job functions. Yes. And, uh, the authors prefer to split teams by functionality. And I'm just kind of still thinking about what that means. They basically say each small team should be responsible for a small aspect of the overall system. Um, which, you know, I think makes sense to me. They're kind of advocating, I guess, for more of a vertical approach here is what we're talking about than, you know, I, I don't well, know. No, I think would it would be, be more, more vertical, more horizontal, horizontal, right? Because you're saying, you're saying like, instead of saying like, okay, <clears throat> like I remember back in, back in the old days, uh, you know, where like at IBM, for example, there was like, oh, hey, here's all of our C developers and mm-hmm. C++ developers. And here's another group that these are all the Java developers. And then here's all of our HTML developers. And these were each different, different groups, different management chains and whatever. And it was like, you know, that's what they're saying shouldn't exist, right? right? Yeah. And instead, you would have a team that, like, this team collectively as a whole, this is, they create the authentication. You're building right? this feature. We need a database person, yep. a C person, and a front end person. Yeah. Right. So, uh, 
Yeah, and then and then commitments change with each project, and so so should the people per the team. So this this part reminded me. I think we've mentioned this before, but it reminded me of a Spotify blog article that's old, um, back from 2014, but around how Spotify structures their teams, and I think. I think I remembered hearing that they don't do this anymore. Necessarily, I think I've heard the same. But it's still, if you've never read this article, and I think there's a corresponding video that goes along with it too. I'll have links for it in the show notes, but uh, it's a two-part article. Great, really great read though. Super interesting. Um, but yeah, th- this is what it reminded me of was, was how that, you know, Spotify used to work with their teams though. So splitting up the teams by functionality doesn't necessarily need to translate to use case though. So in my authentication example, they're saying like, don't listen to all law. <laughs> so, right. And in fact, the database team can count as a team, right? The help subsystem could count as a team. Like departments too, like the accounting team, like these people specialize in the accounting software. That, that makes sense to me. Um, I guess it's kind of weird though. Cause, um, if you've got a team that's more busy than another, then that doesn't really seem very fair, but I guess you kind of shave things off. I guess if you're working with a smaller structure and you've got a customer service team and they have a front end, a back end, a database person, but then uh, there's a lot of work happening on the accounting a lot more than, than uh customer service. And maybe you could borrow some people. I guess there's a, the idea that these teams have to be flexible as, as need. Yeah. If I remember right, that was part of the Spotify thing was like, literally they were just very fluid teams. Okay. Right. And that was, that was part of the thing that was really cool and interesting about it was like, Hey, you know, you get who you need, you work. It's, it's kind of a, a flat hierarchy, right? Like it was just more about accomplishing goals and milestones. So, yeah, I think I heard about Spotify is uh, back when they kind of split their, uh, their pages up and they're like, you get this little spot and you get this square and you get this square. Right. And I know they ended up going away from that, but I don't know about their, uh, like the culture and team organization. If that was part of that change. Yeah, I think I think I remember it being like what you just described, where it's like, oh, we're the banner ad rotation team. So like any banner ads that you would see, regardless of which version of the application, you know, how you know, be it a desktop app or a mobile app or a, a web browser, you know, that that would be that team. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> of course everyone in Spotify is like, No, we didn't do it like that. You got it wrong. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> about twelve hundred of them. Watch out, they'll beat you up. Is it that many now? Oh, uh, it was in this twenty fourteen article. Wow. Well, they know. can Should leave their bigger. comments on uh, codingblocks.net slash episode one fourteen and tell us how we got it wrong. Wow. They might want a book. Uh, yeah, that's right. All right. So uh, they said to look for largely self contained groups of people uh, when you're trying to like build these groups, right? And so, like, how would you define like? You know, how, how do you decide you got, you've got 20, 30 developers, right? How do you decide what the teams are, right? So you, you're going to largely look for the self-contained groups of people. And this is similar to how we would break code up into modules, right? So we're going to use the same techniques that we would use there, such as by contract or decoupling and orthogonality. And by doing so, we can help isolate the entire team from the changes outside of it. I loved this way of thinking about this. I like it. Now, in practice, though, I'm like, okay, that sounds amazing. But in that example of like a 20, 30 person, you know, like overall developer team, like that, that's your total developer team, right? And in practice, it's still like, well, I mean, 
do are there self-contained groups like it's so hard you maybe? have to have well-defined chunked up projects to make stuff like that work right yeah yeah maybe. it's yeah. I, I think I think if you're going to do something like that, you've got to have people that have truly sat down with whatever the roadmap is for whatever product you're working on and saying, these are the separate individual pieces of functionality we're trying to add or whatever before you can even do that. If, if you're kind of more of a fluid organization that's almost like everything's agile where it's like, well, I think we want this feature. It makes this way harder. Because nothing's defined up front for you, right? I think where I have personal struggles with this, though, it, trying to wrap my head around it, is trying to separate the management chain of a team from the project team mm. of a team, right? Like, cause you, cause those don't have to be the same thing. And that's, right. that, you know, they, they're, mm. they're making this kind of point with, and that's why they were saying like earlier, right? Like as the commitments change with a project, you know, the people on that team can change, right? They're not talking about like hiring and firing people all the time, right? They're just talking about like shuffling people around, you know, as the need, as the needs of the overall project will change. And so then it's like, okay, in that 20, 30 person team example, okay, fine. So, you know, now I have this task and here's a group of people I can go give that task to, to get that feature done. And this, you know, this group of people can do that feature, et cetera, et cetera. That makes sense to me. But then how do you, how do you structure management chains in that kind of example? Right. Because like 30 people for one person to manage would be a lot. Right. Yeah. So how do you, how do you deal with that and how do you div- divvy those teams up into meaningful ways or do you Well in my mind the way that works is it's almost on a project by project basis right like there'd be a a a, a team lead for that particular project mm-hmm. manage wait no. oh, Okay go ahead So so I see in that case like so let's say that there's a management hierarchy, right? You you have employees and the manager's responsible for, you know, reviews, time off, all that kind of stuff. They still continue to do that job and they'll communicate with whatever the project lead is. And the project lead will tell them, Hey, you know, so-and-so is doing awesome or they're not doing awesome, whatever. But I think at that point you just treat it as what it is, right? Like those little separate project teams, they they're self-managed, right? The, the manager's job in the role of HR now is truly just HR functions, right? Uh, sick leave, time off, um, you know, any kind of requests, like any kind of problems. Difficult have. conversations. Say what? <laughs> Difficult conversations. Difficult conversations, right? Anything like that. But like, seriously, just like the manager's then just taking on the role of HR manager type stuff. And then the project teams, those things are self-contained and, and they're run by whoever is leading that particular effort. So, so that's what I'm asking though, is it like, you know, do you, do you break up the team from a management point of view into something meaningful or not? And it kind of sounds like what we're saying is don't like, who cares? Don't bother. Right? right. So, so going back to that IBM example, fine. Sure. Like here's all my C and C plus plus developers and here's all my Java developers. And that's fine that they're in separate management chains, because when it comes time to put a project together and you're like, okay, I'm going to need X number of HTML developers or JavaScript or Java or C++ or whatever developers, right? Like you can just mix and match and pull from those yep. those various pools. I kind of like that, honestly. And, and that actually works better. Like I said, you, you know, a lot of development, and, I, and I'm curious what you think about this too, Joe, is 
like a lot of companies have now gone to this agile development, right? Which is amazing for giving customers or whomever what they want in a quicker, you know, Hey, we found out that this is actually more important than what we thought two months ago. So let's switch to this. It's amazing for that, but it does make managing or, or structuring teams a lot harder. And yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think about some of the companies like that. I kind of keep in touch with like with their roadmaps, like uh, elastic searches. I, I love elastic. I love everything elastic. They've got their roadmap published for like, like two years in advance because they're telling you about things that are breaking, that are going away, where the product is overall going, but they still sneak stuff in there. Like every once in a while, if something makes sense, like something changes in the landscape, they might sneak something into a, a release that wasn't planned prior. So they're kind of mixing that longer term roadmap with dates with some some agility there but that's also a lot of the stuff that people complain about i complain about a lot too where you kind of mix agile with dates and those things don't really jive together well and there's a sort of source of a lot of friction and frustration for everybody involved but ultimately it's it's kind of uh you know maybe necessary for a lot of businesses to be able to to do that especially as they get bigger or have a, a lot of customers yep i mean i i guess to to your point Outlaw, I think that in that regard, if you're going to have setups like that where you have fluid teams working on projects with just kind of turning a little task force type things, then I say at that point, the manager's role is to be the HR manager, right? Like that's how it should be set up. And then each individual project that gets set up should have their own leads. And then that way, you know, you divide the two, right? Like there's somebody that's responsible for the project and there's somebody that's responsible for making sure their employees are getting what they need and doing what they're supposed to do. And that's basically it. Yeah. I can get on board with that, you know, cause then it'll allow you to, you know, uh, let's say, let's say you had a team where the management structure was such that like, you know, Hey, this is all the JavaScript developers report to this guy. Right. Well, then they can agree that like, hey, on your various projects, we want to start implementing these new features of, you know, whatever the next version of JavaScript is or whatever the next version of the framework that, you know, you happen to be using across your company or whatever. Like you can kind of like advocate for these changes across the various teams and then they can sprinkle that out based on the individual projects they are they're on so that then as a whole, all of these different, uh, you know, silos can start you know, taking advantage of it. Right. I like that. I hadn't even thought about it. And I also think that that also, that gives people a chance to shine too. Right. Like if you're breaking things up into little project teams, as they come along, then, you know, uh, today Joe gets to step up and, and be the leader of this team tomorrow. Outlaw gets to step up and be the leader of this team. Right. It, it gives people a chance to step into those roles and see what they like, see what they excel at and that kind of stuff too. So, you know, now I'm really selling myself on this too, because like as, uh, as by doing that, if you were to like organize your, your, your management teams to where it was like biotechnology, for example, rather than by use case, then let's imagine the inverse for a moment and say that your management chain was such that, okay, your team is responsible for whatever this feature is. Um, let, let's say it was authentication as an, as an example, and and maybe that's going to require okay we need somebody to do some front end work so there's going to be at least one JavaScript guy on that team or gal uh, there's going to be a database person on the team uh, you know there's going to be a, a middleware you know so somebody's going to be doing Java or C plus uh, C sharp or something like that right and so maybe you have like four or five people on that team and 
And that's the management chain as well as the use case, right? And so now let's say that that database person, they run into issues. In that scenario, they don't really have anyone else to talk to, right? But if if their project of authentication is separate from their management chain and they still have like regular management meetings, then they can be like, hey, have you guys ran into these problems too? Like, because, you know, we're on this other project for authentication and there's this use case, like, it kind of gives it 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 opens up your lines of communication. So yep. yeah, I'm kind of talking myself into that. I like it. Yeah, and it's really good too for if you do have a large team for people to be able to kind of meet other people without having to talk to 200. You know, I give the example 200 before you don't have to talk to 199 people. You talk with like these six people on your Monday weekly meeting about that project and these seven people on your Wednesday and then six months from now, you may be on three teams or whatever. It can kind of rotate and give you different perspective, interact with different people and um, to keep ideas fresh and help things kind of propagate. Yep. Yeah. So they say that when this is done properly, this can reduce interactions, which is your point, Joe, and it Mm -hmm. can reduce time scales and increase quality and reduce bugs. And, and as a result, the developers are going to be more committed Right. Cause they're going to feel like they have, a, you know, whatever the project, cause now they're in the project part of it, they're going to have a little bit more commitment to it. And the teams are going to feel more ownership because they, they know that they alone are responsible for their part. Right. Um, but this approach will only work with responsible developers and strong project management. So I kind of disagree with that. I think at least uh, with developers. Well, so what I was going to say is I think the approach that we were just talking about where you have a management chain that's kind of HR and then you have, you know, a project chain that allows people to start bouncing around to different teams and maybe it helps the people that are a little bit weaker grow into those roles a little bit better, right? Because you start like I doubt you're going to create a project team that has a bunch of weak players on it, right? Chances are, just like any sports game, you know, if you're talking about a pickup basketball game or something, right? Like you start out with some strong ones and and you kind of, you pick your team as you go down, right? And if you're doing that, then maybe you build these better habits because you have some of the weaker players in there with the stronger players and they see what it takes to be that way. At least that's the hope, right? Unless you're a fantasy football draft, you just like did an auto draft on everything, and in which case you might wind, end up with all the worst players. And you shouldn't even be in the auto draft, man. I've got a fantasy football draft tomorrow night. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is sponsored by the O'Reilly Velocity Conference. To get ahead today, your organization needs to be cloud native. The 2019 Velocity program in Berlin this November 4th through the 7th will cover everything from Kubernetes and site reliability engineering to observability and performance to give you a comprehensive understanding of applications and services and stay on top of the rapidly changing cloud landscape. Learn new skills, approaches, and technologies for building and managing large-scale cloud-native systems and connect with peers to share insights and ideas. Join a community focused on sharing new strategies to manage, secure, and scale the fast and reliable systems your organization depends on. Get expert insights and essential training on critical topics like chaos engineering, cloud-native systems, emerging tech, serverless, production engineering, and Kubernetes, including an on-site CKAD prep and certification. Velocity will be co-located with the Software Architecture Conference this year, which presents an excellent opportunity to increase your software architecture expertise. 
Get access to all of Software Architecture's keynotes and sessions on Wednesday and Thursday, in addition to your Velocity Pass access for just €445. Listeners to Coding Blocks can get 20% off of most passes to Velocity when you use the code BLOCKS during registration. Again, that's the code BLOCKS. Well, as we've said before, uh, if you haven't already, we would greatly appreciate it if you'd leave us a review. You can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review and know that we do read those. It puts a smile on our face and we really do appreciate you taking the time out of your day. And with that, we will head into my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, this is oh, backwards no. and we're missing stuff. This is the wrong one here. Oh, no, did you? no, it's it's right. It just, um, yeah, I got things in the wrong order, though. But I just realized when I, I wrote this survey, I did not write it with the typical funny voice that Outlaw normally writes these surveys in. <laughs> By the way, Outlaw does, like, everything on the show. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Outlaw is a beast mode for sure. And, uh, yeah, and I let him down. <laughs> Well, now I'm going to like totally blush. All right, what? So, so, so the, what what has to happen here, uh, unfortunately, is that when you do the survey for uh, this week, you're going to have to make them funny on the fly. Okay. <laughs> so creativity is going to uh, no play. No pressure. Right. And that's on top of me getting things in the wrong order. Okay. As if we haven't done this 113 times before. Right. Right. Gotcha. All right. Well, thanks for that, uh, that pressure. And... Uh, <laughs> Yes. It's on you now. All right. Let me, then I will fix that. And here we go. So, uh, back in episode 111, we asked, what is your favorite shell of choice? And your choices were bash, K shell, ash, dash, Z shell, fish, command prompt, or PowerShell. All right. Uh, Joe, since, since you, you uh, put me on the spot here, I'm going to make you go first. <laughs> PowerShell all the way. Power. 38%. 38%. PowerShell. That, that's commitment. Yep. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Uh, PowerShell 38%. Alan, what say you? Man, you know, I think... I think because our show title says .NET, there's probably a lot of people that lean towards PowerShell, but I'm going to be hopeful, and I'm going to say Bash, Okay, and I'm going to go with 35%. 35%. So I have PowerShell at 38%, Bash at 35%. Correct? Yes. And survey says you're both wrong. Where you guys really weren't even command close. prompt. All right. No, actually, no. no, actually, this one was super impressive to me because it took me by surprise too. Z shell. Wait, how many people really? actually voted on this? Three. That's cool. I've no, never heard of this. No, <laughs> no, there were there were quite a number. Uh, it was thirty seven percent of the vote. I don't even know what Z shell is. And Bash was second. Okay. All right. At what what was the percentage? Uh just under thirty one percent of the vote. Okay. Yeah. So I was rounding out the top three, PowerShell was there, but I mean, you know, I, I've already counted over, you know, almost sixty eight percent of the vote, right? So everything else is really small. 
right? So, so PowerShell was third place with like less than 15%. Man, I'm about to have to change my shell apparently. I don't even know what this is. Well, I mean, it probably just goes to show like how my how many of our listeners actually are not on a Windows platform was right? kind of my takeaway from Yeah, it. that's that's why I was going to lean towards PowerShell. I think yeah. you can install it on Windows. I know um I I've heard of from people who use Macs a lot. That's the only reason I've never used it though, but I've I've heard and I've seen like you can change some icons and do some cool stuff with it, the what it looks like. Yeah, I mean I guess I'm going to have to give it a shot. You know, I mean, we had a, uh, just recently we learned a lot about VI and Vim. So I guess oh, now yeah. I'm going to have to learn a lot from, uh, you know, somebody on the, on the Slack community is going to have to give us a talk on Z shell and why we should care about it because, you know, bash has been forever my go-to on any kind of Unix environment. And now apparently it's not enough. That's so, cool. You know, I got to mention, uh, even though we're still doing the survey, Zach, uh, I'm sorry about your last name, Zach and, Bre- and Brexton. I'm sorry that I can't pronounce your last name. <laughs> Zach and Brexton did an amazing presentation on Vim this weekend that Outlaw and I were in and uh, with a few other people. And uh, I have doubled my command of Vim and I know a little bit about the history and why it makes so much more sense just knowing where things came from. And I learned uh, a couple just life-changing, just little commands that have made things a lot better for me already. So thank you, Zach. That rocked. Yeah, it, it was a really great talk. I know for me, the one that I never knew before, and when he when he talked about it during the talk, I was like, that is a game changer for life, was the command chaining in VI. I never thought about it, never knew about it. It never dawned on me. I would have never Googled it to find out that it was even possible. And then he talked about like how you could chain commands together. So if you wanted to, you know, select and change a word all and then, uh, you know, insert it at the same time, like how you could do that. And I was like, Oh, wow. That's like, I would have just said like, okay, let me find the word, delete it. And now I'll insert. And here's the new word. And like, my way of doing it was so noob compared to how he showed us to do it. Like those types of things as an example. Right. And like, that is just such a minor example compared to some of the things that he showed us related to like finding in, and block selection in it too, in VI too, like, or in Vim. It was, it was awesome. Did we happen to record this or was it on Twitch? He did. He did. He was, he recorded it and, uh, he was going to, uh, share it in multiple places, um once he has it ready so yeah okay so hopefully that'll be in our show notes i don't yes. know if it'll be ready i don't know when he's going to have it ready so i can't commit to that okay but, but it will eventually be yeah so check back we we will once he once he gives us the link then we will definitely uh you know share that awesome my um, favorite was the end so you get, like if because uh, a lot of times i'm doing like config editing and then so you do the uh, like the ci and like W like change in word or change in you could do like quotes and it would change oh, the value yes. in the so you could just start typing you don't have to like normally I would kind of like go back and forth in order to select or delete x x x now uh, it's just like two little letters yeah doggone it yeah it was really good um all right so with that we will head to today's survey and I will read it in my announcer voice or announce or advertisement voice. <laughs> What is your favorite type of swag? I I really can't do that. No, no you can't. You can't do that. <laughs> oh, all right. So, what is your favorite type of swag? 
stickers because they make my laptop go faster. Obviously, if you've ever seen my laptop, it runs like a billion, <laughs> a billion uh, clock cycles per some time frame. It's trying to get away from the stickers. Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> no. <laughs> Although maybe that's part of the reason. Uh, shirts because I wear them pretty often and they make me look pretty. Uh, water bottles because nothing says conference better than something that's going to make me keep me hydrated so that I can run to the bathroom in between talks. <laughs> Coffee cups because my code requires caffeine. Hats because I got to keep that heat in or is it just that I got a bad hair day and I got to hide it? <laughs> I'm going to go with bad hair day. I'd take a bad hair day. Yeah, it's probably a bad hair day. Uh, socks because I mean, come on, everybody loves super cute, funny socks. Like you got to wear, they have to be totally unique and different. You can't have just plain single colored socks. Although that's all I ever wear. So don't, don't make fun of me. All right. You wear socks? Uh, I mean, sometimes. Where are you going, fancy pants? When I wear shoes. Hey, we're talking to Florida boy, Florida yeah. man. Yeah, right. <laughs> hey, Florida man doesn't wear, socks wear, right here. doesn't wear shoes. <laughs> uh, all right. Bags, because they cost the most. <laughs> or pens and notebooks, in case I need to write down something super quick. All right. So... This one will be interesting. It might, it might determine what kind of swag we buy next. You think? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, based on our hair, it's going to be probably the... <laughs> I've seen I've seen our hair style, so it's probably going to be the hats. Or lack thereof. You've seen some of my hairs. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Educative.io. Every developer knows that being a developer means constantly learning new things, new frameworks, languages, patterns, and practices. But there's so many resources out there. Where should you go? Meet Educative.io. Educative.io is a browser-based learning environment allowing you to jump right in and learn as quickly as possible without needing to set up and configure your local environment. The courses are full of interactive exercises and playgrounds that are not only super visual, but more importantly, engaging. And the text-based courses allow you to easily skim the course back and forth just like a book. No need to scrub through hours of video to get to the parts you care about. Amazingly, all courses have free trials and a 30-day return policy, so there's no risk. Try an awesome course like Grokking the Coding Interview, a really good course to prepare you for your next interview. I ended up experimenting with a couple of courses this weekend, and I ended up buying one for Big O Notation. And it was really nice to be able to flip around and be able to read text and skim and go back and forth a little bit just to see what the course was like after I purchased it. And uh, the problems I actually thought were pretty hard, so it was really nice to be able to kind of have that kind of confirmation on the stuff that I was learning and to be able to go back and revisit them easily too. Yeah, you know – I I I took I took it from a different approach. I asked my son, who isn't a software developer, you know, like, hey, can you take a look at this from like someone who is new to programming and, and any of the concepts about it, right? I wanted to get his approach on it. So uh he went through the uh learn Python from scratch, right? And I asked him, I was like, okay, like, you know, get get through it. Tell me, I want to hear like some of your, your feedback on it. Cause I'm kind of curious to see like, uh, you know, what you thought about it. And, and he came back and he was like, 
he really liked the course because he said, you know, it really holds your hand to teach you the new topics and it does a good job of explaining things. So like, uh, you know, something that like you and I might take for granted, uh, like functions, for example, but for him, he, he was like, well, it really explained it well to him. Right. And there were little quizzes and, uh, or there were quizzes and little projects that, you know, they would give you at the end of each section and you, you had to pass them. And, uh, you know, it really made sure that you were paying attention in order to get through it. Right. And, and he thought that the examples were easy to follow and had, uh, you know, really good visuals to help explain what was going on. And he really liked too, that there would be like code samples that, uh, you know, to describe something, but then you could actually, those were live. You could edit them and, and experiment, uh, you know, to see like, well, what if I change this? Like, how might that work? Right. So it's pretty neat getting like the point of view of like someone who isn't already in this world, the software development world, or, like what they thought about in going through the, uh, you know, the, the beginner port beginner courses that they offer. Yeah, the visualizations were really cool too. And yeah, the, just being able to like quickly skim up and down has been really nice because I would kind of fast forward to the stuff that I thought I had a good grip on. And then I was able to kind of, you know, scroll up a little bit in order to read back through what I realized I didn't quite have as great of a grip as I wanted to have. Start learning today by going to educative.io slash coding blocks. That's E-D-U-C-A-T-I-V-E dot I-O slash coding blocks and get 20% off any course. All right, next up is a cool section uh, that we've titled Two Heads. And that's because each project has two heads, basically one technical and uh, one other they call administrative here. Um, the technical head is basically responsible for the development style, assigning responsibilities and arbitrating discussions. Uh, and then the the administrative head is more of like the project manager. I thought it was interesting they called it the administrative head though, because I tend to think of like administrative as like those things like those HR duties and whatnot. And I tend to think of project managers having more of a kind of domain experience than they're kind of stressing here, although they do kind of also talk about scheduling resources and also talking to um, stakeholders and acting sometimes as a, like a PR representative. So they kind of represent the requirements and some aspects there. But I just thought it was interesting that they kind of titled it that way. It is funny that they put the technical lead as the lead architect. I mean, in, in a small group with a lot of projects going on, like this doesn't seem like that would scale that well, that well with, you know, everybody being an architect. I don't know. They need lots of architects. Yeah. It seems like, you know, having a, a project lead that's, you know, a technical person that's got some good technical chops should be good enough in most cases. And then if there's any con- consultation that needs to happen with an architect, then sure. Right. I don't know. That feels a little bit more natural, but. Yeah. I don't really know, but uh, I thought it was kind of funny that they called it two heads. So it kind of implies that there's some sort of like, um, you know, friction or maybe some, uh, some translation there that needs to happen between those two heads, but kind of pulling things in, in two, uh, different ways. Hmm. Um, not that that's a bad thing, you know, sometimes it's kind of nice to, to have that balance. And, uh, so yeah, I just thought it was kind of interesting. I also mentioned, uh, additional resources for larger teams. You know, we talked about the librarian. Uh, they also mentioned the water tester. So <laughs> we got some notes here. Uh, I definitely feel like I've, I've seen the librarian roll around. Really? In fact, like, uh, really? Yeah. I, th- well, so my first thought was, um, so we, we've referred to Arlene in the Slack as being a, a sort of librarian because she has her finger on the pulse of like everything. So anytime, 
uh, something, you know, interesting or question comes up, like she just knows how to put her fingers on it like, instantly. She just knows a lot of stuff and uh, can point to it really quickly. So I've, I've kind of thought of her as kind of having a librarian type roles in some aspects. Oh, that's, that's I, interesting. I can see like, you know, if you kind of like when you work in an organization, you just don't know where to go to talk to somebody. There's usually someone around who's been there for a while that you can go to and say like, who worked on this piece or who can get me closer to this? And they can usually get you either to the person or closer. Well, I mean, basically the way you're describing, at least the way I'm envisioning what you're describing, though, is the person, like the project elder, right? Whoever whoever has, like, through attrition is the last, you know, the, <laughs> the person who still remains on the project, right? They know whatever history there was, so they are that person, right? But it's not like an official kind of role, like they haven't been appointed as the librarian or, or historian. Well, I don't want to necessarily conflate it with elder because it, I don't think it necessarily, uh, I think the history is a big part of that. Like obviously, you know, there's a historian too, but I think there's a lot to be said for just knowing what, what new is happening. So a lot of times on a team, like if, if something breaks, like you might go to a manager or an architect and say like, Hey, something's not behaving correctly. Who is making changes in this area? And they've just got their finger on the pulse of everything. You know, they've got their finger in every pie, so to speak. And so a lot of times there's certain people that just seem to know more about what's going on, whether it's because they work wide or maybe they're in, you know, lots more exciting meetings or or for whatever reason, they just seem to have a, a broader picture of what's happening. I like that. That makes sense. And, and yeah, I've actually seen Arlene on, on some of our Git projects, like, you know, answering questions and, and updating things here and there. And yeah, that makes sense. I, I kind of see it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. She, she's, I just want to ask something about, um, was it, um, dealing with errors or something? Someone asked something in Slack, uh, the other day. Asked if we had an episode about it and we didn't, um, but she was instantly like, Oh, here's two podcasts that were about it, uh, reporting bugs. Uh, here's two podcasts that did talk about it. And here's a couple of good links. It's like, Holy crap. I looked at it. I was like, this is like, I'm adding some bookmarks here. This is good stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever been on a project though, where we had the, that librarian and specifically like as the book calls it out is like someone who's going to index and store code and documentation. And I'm like, wait a minute, uh, isn't that just software? Isn't that what wikis or version control systems are for? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, I don't like I have to look at an official role for it. It's like, oh, you got to be the note taker because you did it once. <laughs> yeah, and no, nobody wants that. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then they also called out like, you know, a, a tool builder, someone that provides the tools, environments, and support. This opens, Yeah, I want to do that one. Well, hold on. This opens up Outlaw's annoyance with the term a DevOps no, no, engineer. No, 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 no. This isn't, this isn't, or at least the way I took it, this wasn't it because like they're, they're, this would be more than that and because that support portion of this in my mind is bigger than that like this is you know in the book they were talking about it building like you know this might be the person that would be like per building here's the system you're going to dev on this is the environment you're going to dev on mm-hmm. uh, right and provide support so it's more than just like automating the build I got you. or something like that right yeah i don't know it, it, like they're providing the tools so here's here's the tools you're going to build with here's the environment you're going to build with it's interesting because at least from my perspective this is usually everybody right like joe was talking about earlier that he's got his own scripts that are doing things you know i'm sure you have your own things that you build heck you have your own bin directory in windows um, you know, but I mean, we've all been, we've all been in environments. We're in an environment now where it's like, right. you know, 
someone like, Hey, here's your, here's your dev laptop, right? Yeah, that's true. That's but, true. but even in that, even in our current environment though, like, uh, you know, I've said like, okay, here, here's, here's a script to help everyone like, you know, build their environment up. Right. Like where it's all automated. Right. Right. Uh, but that's what I'm saying. Like everybody sort of takes part in this, right? Like to a certain degree. I mean, it's almost like calling out the librarian. Like, I feel like having just a person that's a librarian or a person that's your tool builder feels kind of wrong, at least in a lot of the stuff that I've done over the years. In a lot of way, this role felt to me like your IT, you know, your IT team, hmm. right? Not the dev team, but the IT team, hmm. okay. at least in the way they described it. Although with now with like building environments and stuff like I, that's Kubernetes or that's VMs or that's. You know, that's almost stuff that I spin up in the cloud or whatever. I, I think a lot of these roles are changing as time moves on, too. Is, well, definitely, is kind of since, the definitely since the book. So, like, for example, Vagrant is yeah. an example where you could, like, build out, uh, you know, VMs in, the, in like, you know, in an AWS environment, right, where you could, like, hey, here's the predefined tools that are already going to be installed on it for you, right? And you don't have to think about it. Right. Yeah. Right. So, automation, then. Since we're kind of already on this topic, uh, you know, this is they they similarly to the quote that I said at the beginning. They they had a similar quote here later in the book. The best way to ensure consistency and accuracy is to automate everything that can be automated, right? So, you know, going back to like how to make pragmatic teams, right? You can't have everybody just doing their own, you know, one offs here and there, right? Script it. And so it's repeatable so that everybody can use it, right? Even if it's just building your environment, right? Uh, bash scripts, make file, et cetera. You know, it isn't going to change itself typically, <laughs> right? And, and yeah, it which can means be, if you want it to be good enough for other people to use, I need a ticket. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> it, and it can be versioned too, though, right? So, yeah. so you can see, like, you can track those changes to it, right? So, automation is an essential element of any pragmatic team. Now, this is where the previous, the last point about the tool builder and automation kind of like merge. And now, now we can prepare for the fun. So, it says appoint one or more people as the tool builders to build and deploy tools that automate the project's boring parts. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So this is the nowadays DevOps people, folks. Except, do you appoint them, which kind of sounds like now that's their full-time job, it's or do you cases. just say like, hey, everybody's, everybody's contributing to this thing, right? I think it depends on the environment. I mean, we didn't jump into this deep last time, but if you've got something that is super duper heavy on something like Kubernetes, or if you have big puppet scripts and that kind of stuff, then yeah, maybe you do have somebody dedicated to it because that's a deep pool to be in. Right. If it's something where you got smaller teams that just have things that need to happen here and there, yeah, everybody should pitch it. And I think everybody should pitch in anyways, and everybody should at least be cursorily um, aware of what's going on. But I definitely think that, in some situations, these absolutely could be full-time gigs for, for one or, or a team of people. I think it's going to, uh, let's say, let's say it would vary by team, like by, by organization, right? That can be a huge factor. Yeah, totally. If you're, if you're in a company the size of like, you know, an IBM or a Facebook or a Microsoft, right? Then, then 
the larger the organization, the more capable people are of specializing in something that's super specific like that, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, You know, you could make a career out of just, you know, Postgres development and nothing else, right? But, you know, when you're in a smaller company and there's like 10 developers, right? Then every developer is wearing many hats. And, And even in those bigger companies, though, you you're still going to know like there might be an infrastructure specialist that's going to be ultimately responsible for the thing that's going to go to production. But that doesn't mean that for the development part of it, that you might not have to do some types of things that would still fall in like an infrastructure type of role, right? It just might not be the version that makes its way to production, right? But you might still, you know, build, configure an environment that you're going to do your development on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think everybody still has to have some, you know, parts of that. I think you just get a DevOps person. <laughs> I know when to stop adding paint. I knew, <laughs> I knew he was going to do it. I was like waiting for him. <laughs> like, when's he going to troll me on this? What's going to happen? When? We need to have an episode <sighs> on uh, on it next. We should we should talk about that. <sighs> I'll add it to the Stay schedule. Stay tuned. All right. So know when to stop adding the paint. Uh, as Joe said. So, you know, pragmatic teams will give each member an opportunity to shine and you'll provide the, they provide the team members with enough structure to support them and ensure that the project delivers against those requirements, but then they resist the urge to add more paint. So this role is the, uh, no one to stop adding paint role. (laughs) So you need to have at least four, four people on your team. You need the toolmaker, no one to stop adding painter. The uh, librarian. I forgot the other. The, we need the, the water librarian taster. and the, the water. The chief water tester. The water taster. And we're going to yep. change. Oh, yeah. And the technical lead and the uh, the administrative lead. Yep. So you actually so need that, 20, you go. 20 people per team. And it was 27. 27, thought, 27 roles per team. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think this makes sense. Uh, you know, we've talked about gold plating in the past, but usually that's not the problem. So I don't know too many teams that, uh, you know, keep making stuff better along past it's worth it. But I think as it relates here though, like when they say like knowing when to stop adding the paint as it relates to the teams and giving the team members enough to enough structure to support them. I think what they're saying is like, as an example, maybe it's like not, um, okay. So going back to your example earlier, Alan, not putting too much rigor or, or too many, uh, boundaries on what the developer can do. So you give them enough freedom to be able to explore their creative side or whatever, and like come up with their creative solution, right? Without overly dictating like how they do what they do or whatever. Like that would be adding too much paint. If you're like, you know, putting those kind of restrictions on how they can do it. Okay. Yeah. It's one of my pet peeves with like uh, writing up any kind of tickets for, for people to do a task. I cannot stand it when somebody writes out every single step. It's like, wait a second, man. If you, if you're going to take the time to sit there and say, okay, you're going to use an I dictionary here and then you need to put this and this and you're going to do that. I've seen, I've seen people write things up like that. And I'm like, uh, why don't you just write the code? Like, please don't waste anybody's time. Don't, don't dictate implementation details, right? And put it up the top. I don't like to scroll so much. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to describe like the given when then syntax, like that that was what you hated. I'm fine with that. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm actually fine with that because as long as you're defining the intent and what you want the outcome I'm to. I'm a big fan do, of the given when then. 
yeah, I'm fine with that. Hey, Joe, you're over there huffing and puffing. No, I was just uh, thinking good things again. So, <laughs> Kotlin, my love, <laughs> where have you been all my life? <laughs> this is kind of unrelated. This should maybe be a tip. Yeah, I'll say this. I'll say this for my tip. Okay. I'm going to change my tip. All right. Okay. That's interesting. Well, I can't wait to get to that. So, you know what? We're done. Let's just skip ahead. There we go. And uh, we will, you know, obviously there's going to be some resources we like. We'll have several links in there. We mentioned the Spotify one. Of course, we're going to have links to the Pragmatic Programmer uh, in, in that section. And with that, we will head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. All right. So um, I don't remember who brought up this conversation in Slack, but somebody threw down the gauntlet and said that they they hadn't heard a tip of the week from me that required a me rattling off a long git command. <laughs> and so I immediately said, challenge accepted and knew exactly of a couple that I, I would share. Um, so one that I find, uh, sometimes handy and I was surprised that I'd never mentioned this one before was if you ever find yourself in a situation where you need to undo your last commit. Yep. So I, there's a, I'll include a stack overflow link for this one because I'm always just to be doubly sure that I'm executing this command, right? I always go back and just. I, I know exactly the Stack Overflow answer, so I just like, go back and check it. Like, yep, that's the way. I always double check it before I hit the enter key. But I'll go ahead and type the command, and the command would be git space reset space head tilde. Wait, wait, wait. I think we need to mention that this might be the most upvoted answer I've ever seen on Stack Overflow. Twenty-one thousand twenty-one and a half. Yeah. 595 wow. upvotes. I don't think I've ever seen that anywhere on Stack Overflow. That's yeah. amazing. Okay. Yeah, he got some serious credit for this answer. I'm going to go ahead and click up on it. Oh, I'm not logged in. Never mind. <laughs> it's too much work. Yeah. Like I said, that that one, it, it's a game changer. So I, I'm, I'm including it in there, but uh, I'm definitely going to give this link in there because, you know, uh, I always go back to it, even though I know the command, I still go back and check it because uh, I'm always, always have that fear of like, wait, what if I, what if I'm about to like undo some history that I didn't mean to undo? I just want to be sure. I just need another voice of reason that's saying, yep, that's the right command. So, uh, there it is. And just as a bonus, uh, have you ever found yourself where like, maybe you go down some rabbit hole of like, you, you start making some changes and everything. And then you're like, you know what? I actually, I want to scrap all this. I, I don't, I don't want to commit any of this. Right. And you know, you could go through the hassle of like doing a get checkout minus minus on one or two files or, you know, each individual files, but that can be a pain, especially if there's a lot of files. Right. So get space, reset space, minus minus hard minus head. No, no, not minus head. I said minus minus hard minus head. Oh, space. sorry. Ah, jeez, <laughs> I'm messing up my own tip. Okay, let me let me get reset head tilde that last statement that I made, <laughs> and and restate this one again. Get space reset space minus minus hard space head. Yes, and that one will uh, undo all of your current changes and just reset the environment back. 
I'm surprised now, you did that in your additional command that you typically run right after this. Well, I'm going to say mm-hmm. it okay. because in case if you uh, have if if there are untracked changes that are included with that, that get reset hardhead will not remove those because they're untracked. So if you wanted to get rid of those, then the bonus command there would be get space clean space minus F, and that would remove those files as well. So when he says untracked changes for anybody that's like, what? That's like files that weren't already in your git commit history or anything like that. So you added new files or something like that. That's how you would kill those off your system as well. You know, I always do get, get reset dash dash hard, but I never do the head. Well, I mean, yeah, it's optional. I always yeah, specify okay. like where I want to put it. That What you're doing technically though is you're saying like what commit you want to go back to. So I always just specify head to go back to the head. Yep. Okay. Good to know. And it's funny with that. When I do my get reset head tilde, I usually do one. I always thought you had to do the number there because you can do more than one if you want to specify. So it's funny that I go more explicit on that one and not the other. Right. Yeah. Yeah, We're opposites. All right. right, So now, and now (laughs) Joe will share with us his greatness. This tip of the week that came to us on spur of the moment. Yep, yep, this is a good one. And I like it because it's going to uh, annoy Outlaw. Oh, so, geez. Uh, so this is like, um, everybody is a DevOps guy. <laughs> 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 Here's why you need a DevOps specialist on your team. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So this is uh, from my long list of reasons why you should consider using Kotlin for all of your programming. And uh, this is actually reason 147. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> Did you know in Kotlin... You can uh, put back ticks around your function names in order to enter arbitrary text. So things that would normally not be allowed in function names like spaces. And what this means is you can have a function and then an English-like looking sentence. Now, you might be thinking this sounds horrible for regular coding. You don't want to be <laughs> doing this sort of stuff. You don't want to be calling functions with uh, sentences for names. However... Works out really well for testing because they actually encourage and actually in the style guide, they say you should only use these back ticks for testing. It just reads really nice in, in your editor. And chances are, if you're doing Kotlin, I think you're pretty much using IntelliJ. You'd be kind of crazy not to. Um, I'm sure it's not your only option, but it works really great. And uh, it just shows up really well. And so, you know, we've kind of talked about some other kind of naming strategies and ways of kind of wrapping classes. But it's kind of nice by like kind of having most people using one tool for one language. Uh, it's already kind of set up really nicely to show up nicely. You can see all the information you need. It already kind of breaks down by class. And so you can see everything that you can see with other naming strategies. And it just reads like plain English. You can type exactly what you're testing in something that's really readable to a human and it's really sharp and it's a great feature, and it's reason number 147 why you should be using Kotlin for everything. <laughs> what were the first 146? Oh, I don't have. There's no time for that tonight. <laughs> I think we're already probably over the the hour mark here. Go, getting pretty close to it. <laughs> the hour mark. Although Oops. we should comment that even like from the JetBrains team, they're like, I don't know if this is a good idea to abuse backticks in this way. <laughs> I have not tried emojis yet, but I'll let you know tomorrow. Uh, All right. It is fair to say that everybody that has now been introduced to Kotlin that I'm close to has sung its praises to the level of C sharp and beyond in some cases. 
Yeah. So yeah, I've bagged on Java quite a bit, and I want to say that I'm sorry because I I didn't know any better. <laughs> now I've seen the light. Okay. Okay. So uh, asking a total noob question here: Does it have features like Link? It does. Ah, really? Yeah, it does. Uh, and, and the really way nice features Jay Z is saying like it windowing and nice, so it's better. Yeah, well, one thing that I particularly like about their link type features is that uh, most of the functions uh, have a default variable name, it, it. So, like, you know, in link and C sharp, you have to do like ax arrow or uh-huh. x arrow function name. And it's annoying sometimes when you're just doing like little things like method groups or just small calls. But it's just nice to be able to do curly brackets, not, not parentheses, uh, it dot whatever. And another thing that's nice about having your link, your Lambda expressions in curly brackets is that you still have optional parentheses for arguments. One thing that's always been kind of awkward in C sharp and length, if, if you've got multiple arguments, say like if you're doing a, I forget what they call it, whether it's an inject or reduce or whatever the name is, um, is it group in C sharp? Uh, you do the lambdas like the first argument and then you pass the initial value in the second. And it's just awkward to kind of have that comma and those multiple lambdas. And that's something that uh, Colin's gotten around with the curly brackets because that was – oh, sorry. Let me write that down. That was uh, – looking it up. Uh, reason 136. <laughs> so so you're referring to like an example in C Sharp where like you might do an, a dot aggregate. And yeah, you would have to you would have to first uh, do the initializer. So like if you were doing a string building, you might say like, uh, you know, in your dot aggregate, open up your parentheses, new string builder. And then in your next set of parentheses, you would have like – uh, you know, the list and then whatever the string builder right. variable is that you're going to pass in to the next function, and then fat arrow and then curly brace and then go on. Right. Yep. Yeah. And you actually know reason number 17, while well, I like Kotlin <laughs> is because it uses standard names like fold and map and reduce and things that, you know, from other languages and it weren't Wait, just made up specifically for C sharp, like on. aggregate hold and up. select. Hold up. Hold up. <laughs> Let, let's be fair. It's not that you knew them from, other languages, Quote other JavaScript is what we're talking about here. Hey, that's what they are in uh, Python, I believe, right? Doesn't that Python have like map and stuff like that? The, the names that they used? I don't know. Yeah. You, I mean, not that I know. I just know from JavaScript. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> from I, other languages. I, I just like that you've like actually taken the time to write down this list and number them. <laughs> and, you know, you can quickly go back and find things in this list. Yes, you can actually publish them. a book. You should. You should. The 149 reasons I love Kotlin. Oh, it was <laughs> way more than that. <laughs> I'm still adding to it, too. Uh, that's amazing. All right, so mine's actually, I've got to admit, I stole this from the MS Dev Show. They they had an episode where they weren't even talking about this, and they threw it out there like it was just this nonchalant thing. And I was like, wait a second, what? So we've talked about on this podcast several times that – it's real easy to start a project and then get lost in authentication world, right? Like, oh my Lord, how many different ways and how many different lines of code do I have to write to authenticate something? Man, Microsoft has built what's called the Microsoft Authentication Library. And the beauty behind this thing is it's got, it's got, um, includes for .NET, for JavaScript, for Android, for iOS, and it's also got this um, for Java 
pre that's currently in preview. But basically what it boils down to is if you're using like Azure, um, Azure Active Directory, this will do it for you. You put it in your code and it will set up your authentication, all the redirects and tokens and logging in and everything else. It does it for you. So when I heard this, I, I sort of almost wrecked my car. Like, man, this really makes me mad. That I've never heard this before. And like I said, it was just like this random little comment. They threw out, oh yeah. Like the Microsoft authentication library. I was like, huh? What? So, uh, got a link in the show notes here. Go check it out. There is one important thing to call out here is there's a difference between a dial, which I'd never heard of, um, the Azure directory authentication library and the MSAL, which is the Microsoft authentication library. So apparently one uses the old version for Azure AD where this new one uses version two, um, with the Microsoft identity platform. So apparently there's two of these things that existed that I never knew about. So you're welcome. Go play with this. This might be really cool to just plug in and play with. But okay. I mean, it sounds great, I, I, but I, I'm curious. Don't Are, butt me. No, no, no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but I'm trying to understand, though, like, is this um, uh, uh, an authentication library for just their own thing? Because they mentioned, like, there's no direct, no need to directly use OAuth libraries. Right. So does that mean that you can use this to authenticate, like, a Facebook OAuth implementation or I Google, like how does so. that? Because they don't mention like any other services that are provided. So I'm like, oh, well, and maybe they don't need to because if it's just a protocol, then you know it should just adhere to the protocol. So why would you need to? But that's what I'm trying to understand. Yeah, so they've even got a thing on here for OAuth two in the implicit flow. So the, here I'll read it. Our goal is that the library abstracts enough of the protocol away so that you can get plug and play authentication. But it is important to know and understand the implicit flow from the security perspective. So that is the goal, right? Like you can truly plug this thing in. And I would imagine if you had something like Facebook or Google authentication or whatever, as long as you have those um, connectors set up for it, then it should work. I'm trying to look down here and see if they've got anything for it. Man. Well, now you might be able to finish that next uh, cloud app. Then it'll be on to the billion users because you'll have authentication solved. Right. It's it's pretty crazy. Like (laughs) when I heard this, I was like, really? I just loved where you started because I immediately thought back to those those jokes about the babillion users and you know trying to solve authentication first. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to scale to the planet. Yeah, but first I got to authenticate somebody. So yeah, um, definitely check it out. Pretty cool stuff. Uh, it's the it's one thing that I thought about so many times. Like, man, I should just write this because it's it's way too hard. But apparently, somebody already did. They beat you to it. They did. I'm fine with that. All right. Well. With that, uh, Joe, you want to you want to summarize this tip again? Oh uh, yeah, so I, I like to throw out those tips again. This was number sixty, which is to organize around functionality, not job functions. How do we all feel about that one? I kind of like that one. Yeah, I'm down with it. Yeah, I think I think we got to a good place on that one where we could all agree. All right. Yep. So with right. that. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, more using your favorite podcast app. And uh, like I asked earlier, 
Be sure to leave us a review if you haven't already. We would greatly appreciate it. You can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. And while you're at codingblocks.net, check out our show notes, examples, discussion, and more. I knew he was going to be all up in my weedies. (laughs) (laughs) So so, is that going to be the thing from now on? We're going to like all try to do that? That that, like hurt my brain. I can't can't take it. (laughs) Well, imagine I was trying to listen to it. It was like, wait, who's saying what? I knew he was doing it too. Uh, So yeah, if you haven't, check us out on Twitter at Cody Blogs. Head up to codingblocks.net and you'll find all our social links there at the top of the page. And with that script flipped. And don't forget to say, uh, you know, send your feedback questions and rants to Joe on the Slack channel. Yeah, totally. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> it's Jay-Z something crazy now. It it's changes always, like from week to week. It's always something crazy, but yeah. Oh, can I say what it was? Yeah, right now? It is Jay-Z, the Quetzalcoatlin. <laughs> you guys familiar with Quetzalcoatl? No. Oh, Alan, I, I knew, I didn't expect it from you, but come on, Outlaw Quetzalcoatl? No. You need to play more video games. What? I don't even know how you spell it. Let's build dragon of like uh, either Aztec or Mayan. I forget Mayan. Maybe. That crap. I don't know. <laughs> See, you don't. Even I know, know Final Fantasy. What can it. I say? That's that's bunk. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's how I feel about Kotlin. Though I am eating the world, and I require human sacrifices. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>